I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! Welcome to Badass Women's Hour. Three women, one podcast, all the opinions we can muster in a whole load of badass. This is me, Harriet Minter, with Emma Sexton, and this week, Porna Bell, giving you all the latest news and gossip that we're talking about, plus an amazing interview with Caitlin Davis, author of Bad Girls, The Rebels and Renegades, all about women in Holloway Prison, and what to do if you're a new stepmom. But first of all... News of the week. So this is a story that caught my eye and I just don't know how I feel about it. Scarlett Johansson went to the Met Ball, as did lots of other people. You know, Met Ball, big fashion deal. What you wear, very important. And she chose to wear a label called Marquesa. Marchesa for the... I think it's with the K. K. I think yeah. it is. We'll say Marquesa. Um, I can't afford to buy it, so I've never bothered to find out how you pronounce it. Uh, she chose to wear it. And Marquesa is... Uh, the label of Georgina Chapman, who is the wife of Harvey Weinstein. Ex-wife. They got divorced in January. Oh, yeah. good point. Ex-wife. I did my yeah. research. Oh, look at you getting in there really quickly. <laughs> yep. Very quickly divorced in January, I think. Um, and the internet has basically gone a bit mad at her, saying she shouldn't have been wearing the dress, that by wearing it, she is su- kind of undermining anyone who has ca- come forward and talked about what Harvey Weinstein was up to, anyone who's been part of the Me Too movement. They're saying Scarlett Johansson is a traitor to Me Too. I don't know what I feel about this. Emma, what do you think? I'm really annoyed at the backlash because, yes, okay, Georgina was married to Harvey Weinstein, but ultimately this is her fashion brand that she's built. And from what I've been reading, people are like, she should just shut that down and start up another fashion label. Having Being somebody who runs a business, I know how hard it is to build a business from scratch, how to, you know, get people wearing your dresses, building them. Why the hell should she redo her whole... down her label and restart it up just because her husband was a complete moron well aren't we just tainted by association though isn't it about the company you keep porno what do you think um i mean i'm also unfortunately stuck on the fence a little bit with this one because i I wouldn't go so strong as to say oh you know scarlet's betrayed all of womankind because i think that in a marriage there is probably a lot of stuff that she wasn't aware of and didn't know about and also unless you're in that marriage how are you ever going to know the full contents of it do you know what i mean but on the other hand i just think that there's a very murky line around this which is um okay she wasn't you know uh the the one that was doing um, all of the things that Harvey was doing. However, it is, you know, we have to be honest here. Like, her brand benefited from the fact that she was married to someone with such a high profile. But loads of businesses do. That's that's networking. So I don't think there is a murky line at all. No, there's a big difference between networking and nepotism. So networking Mm. is building your contacts, really grafting for it. Nepotism is being related to the right person. Yeah, but that's about family members, nepotism. I mean, you know, of course she's got access to So you're saying if you're married to somebody, you're not a family member? No, but what I'm saying is... 
know when you're married to somebody, he she was able to access A-list celebrities. So she got Reese Witherspoon to wear her dress. Now, if you're an early stage label, getting celebrities to wear your outfits, any any fashion brand will tell you that getting some kind of influencer to wear your label is a big deal and it helps to launch your business into success. I don't think, you know, she had... I don't think there is a murky line. Just because you're married to somebody, why should you let your partner's behaviour affect your hard work and your business? Absolutely because not. The, the two things, oh, no. unfortunately, aren't... It's not like there was a very, you know, definitive line between his business and her business. And the problem with Harvey, particularly more than anything else, is that he his crimes were completely enmeshed in his career. So, therefore, if she is using or has used his career and his status and his money to further and expand and grow her well, own she business. Reckons she it hasn't. Is difficult. She reckons she hadn't had any investment from him. He's but, had- the, but the line is murky, right? Because um, of what the there were uh, allegations, let's say, um, that he coerced women celebrities into wearing her outfits. Yeah, but how do you... She, you don't. We don't know that she knew that. She might not have even known that. He might have been like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a big favour for my wife. Possibly, but I think... Is, isn't that what we were... Uh, or rather, Harry, isn't that what you were talking about with regards to it being tainted? Yeah, it's tainted. It's tainted by association. And this is a reality about who you yeah. do business with. Be careful mm. who you do business with because if you do business with people with, who have murky dealings, whatever those murky dealings are, if those murky dealings get exposed you get hit with the flack as well. Well, well what oh. do you think, listeners? Oh, yes, yes, I just, I just silenced her. She's going to think about it and come That's back. because I didn't have a short answer. <laughs> She's going to think about it and come back. But we'd love to know your views. Do you think Georgina Chapman's label, Marquesa, has been tainted by the actions of her husband? If one part of a marriage does something wrong, does it affect the other part? Give us a call and tell us 0344 499 Emma, what's your story this week? So my story this week is an article that I've got to say has really took me by surprise. So I really wanted to talk about it because when I investigated this story, there's this... this Let me tell you about the story first. So basically, it was in The Guardian, written by Ruby Hamad, and she says how white women use strategic tears to silence women of colour. And I read this article and I was like, "Uh, what? (laughs) And then I did some research and I could see that this is clearly something that happens to uh, the vast majority of women of colour. And as a white woman, this has just not been on my radar uh, on any level. Can you explain what it is? So is it just all white women crying all the time ever? No, it's about basically white women crying in certain scenarios. So maybe sort of a confrontation or maybe it's a a woman of colour is the boss and it's um, somebody that they're kind of reprimanding, using those tears to kind of escape responsibility and ultimately kind of make that woman of colour look like they were in the wrong. Uh, and this appears to be a massive thing. And I thought it, it's really important to talk about because I feel as a woman of uh, a white woman, I have a duty to uh, women of colour to try and, you know, help shape things. And if I don't understand where this has come from and what needs to change, then how can other white women and how can we change this? And so, yeah, I was interested to get your thoughts on this article. Um, well, for me, I thought it was really interesting. So I've, I've heard about this before. It's been uh, something that... We wrote about when I was at The Guardian that I've talked about and I sort of feel two things about it. So one is I do think there are certain women out there and I'm going to be honest and I say they are mostly quite privileged white women who when faced with harsh criticism from anyone think the default response to that is tears because that's how they've manipulated their way through life. However, where I think the difference comes is if you're throwing tears at a white man who's your boss or a white woman who's your boss you don't get the level of flack that you do if you're a woman of colour I simply because as a woman of colour you're already being hit with all the prejudices and unconscious biases that we all have and we all bring to the workplace but we should probably ask the woman of colour in the studio (laughs) (laughs) so when I read this article um, I I mean it it was very, very powerful, and I was uncomfortable with certain bits of it. Um, but there were two things that came out of it. So uh, it really hit a nerve. It went completely mad on social media. And, um, you know, understandably, um, you know, uh, 
white women were or some white women were saying, you know, this is unbelievable. And um, are you suggesting that every white woman does this, et cetera, et cetera. And I understand why it's a hugely emotive thing, because if you are a white woman and you have cried for someone to make you feel like you were doing it with an agenda, um, you know, that would really upset me if I were a white woman. However, I am not a white woman. So being on the other side of it, what I would just say is that that article managed to give substance to something that is unbelievably intangible. And and I have to be honest with you, I didn't quite realise that's what had happened to me a few times in the past until that article articulated it. And what I would just say to like women who are really outraged by it or who, you know, uh, just can't believe that someone has written an article like this is that, you know, yes, be outraged by it, have an opinion about it. But I think what people really might need to look at is the fact that it resonated with so many women of colour. And that in itself, to me... Um, says that a conversation needs to be had about it. So when you say something intangible, really what you're saying is that actually being in a situation where, for example, you as the boss have to tell off somebody who's done something wrong, they cry and everyone starts to take their side even though actually you are the person in the right. Yeah, um, or you're viewed um, in certain circumstances as being overly aggressive, when actually what you're just doing is you're calling someone to account for their behaviour, which is hugely problematic. And the what you were saying earlier, Emma, about um, you know uh, what women of colour have to contend with, you know, when I'm or when I've been in a meeting room, or let's say I'm in a position of power, I know that I'm there as a woman, and that's a big deal because more often than not, I'm probably one of the only women in the room but as a woman of color I know that I have to keep everything inside and I have to represent and I can't I can't lose it in there and I can't be seen to be getting emotional about things and I think when you are then met with a reaction from the other side where someone's being very emotional about things but yet you are still the one that's demonized because you haven't let you know that slip that I think is something that women really struggle Interesting. with so that's that's mm. the uh, I'm tr- nuance so it's not quite the word so what you're saying is as a woman of colour you yeah. quite often have to suppress your true feelings because you've got to manage yourself in a different way yeah. so when a white woman is like very vocally upset or whatever it's almost like well hang on a minute mm. you know there's no understanding or appreciation of, of what you have to do to kind of manage your yourself in the workplace yeah I mean I would say I would broaden it to say that I would also apply that to men but I would definitely say that there have been situations where uh, when there is a woman who's getting emotional and I'm not um, I'm not viewed as being you know the one that managed to keep it together I'm viewed as being the aggressor right and, yeah. and harsh perhaps or yeah. like the unfeeling or whatever yeah. and you guys know okay. me you know I'm not harsh oh, oh, no. <laughs> sweetie pie yeah, lovely well, well let's see the time. let's see <laughs> <laughs> uh, so our final story this week Fonda, this is yours isn't it? Your it is. Story. It's Tell my us. baby. So this is, well, not my actual baby. <laughs> I don't like children. But um, <laughs> so this is um, this is a feature that I wrote for the pool after a couple of things that I noticed um, that were kicking around on the internet. So the first was this article that um, a author called Jessica Knoll wrote called I Want to Be Rich and I'm Not Sorry. And it's basically about how she wants to earn pots and pots of money and doesn't feel that she should have to apologise for it. But women are seen as being quite obnoxious when they say that they want to be rich. And then kind of off the back of that, there were murmurings around on Twitter and um, a few sort of prominent women. So we had Emma Gannon, we had Dolly Alderton and we had Laura Jane Williams, who basically made a very specific point of either not being paid or saying that um, they do pay women when they get when they ask them to do work or that they um, ask them about events uh, to, or to contribute to events. And what that got me thinking, and the disclaimer here is, I'm not saying that women have to take responsibility for being paid fairly or the gender pay gap, because let's face it, that's a huge issue. That's everyone's problem. But I thought, you know what? Maybe we have to, A, be honest with ourselves about the fact that we want to earn money and earn some decent money and not feel that we have to apologise for that. And secondly, to be able to kind of stand within that and understand our own worth and actually actually ask for the money that we think we're worth rather than the bare minimum of what we think someone will pay us. And within that, I decided that I wanted to have a look 
at what do we need to do in terms of our internal housekeeping as a gender to make sure that we're not, um, you know, keeping women down by not paying them on time or not paying them fairly or when we ask them for a quote, you know, we kind of make a face or we have a reaction to things. And I spoke to quite a few women and one of them who runs the um, group FEQUAL, um, which is a women's empowerment group, basically said that unfortunately, you know, there are women, um, quite a few women that she's come across who are complicit in not paying or being a bit hypocritical about women being paid. Interesting. So do we think women not being paid as much as they should be actually just comes down to women not paying them well? Emma, what do you think? Uh, I I kind of feel like there is a a duty, a responsibility that we have individually uh, as whether you are asking for what you're worth. I find it all the time. I don't know where this comes from. Women not asking what they're they're worth and feeling really uncomfortable about that. And I think we know that's a problem. And I think all of us have to work really hard on changing that because if we all do that collectively, we'll all raise our prices, which means that all women coming up the next you know coming up afterwards will also get paid fairly I also think that if you are employing women you have a duty to make sure they are paid fairly I do it all the time I employ a lot of freelancers and if I think someone's not paying what the market rate is I will actively tell them to charge me more and like I don't like that's what we should be doing So I absolutely agree, but I have been in a position where I couldn't pay women so uh, when I was working for a very big newspaper you can all go Google which one. Um, I was running a section which wrote about women and work and we would take free copy from people because our budget was so small. We had to fill a lot of space. We had a tiny, tiny budget. And so we would push back on people and say, well, can we have this for free? Or can we give your book a promo? Or can we give your event a promo? Um, and if we had freelance writers, I would have to really haggle with them as to how much they were going to get. And I... You know, I felt uncomfortable about that to be on the one hand writing about women should be asking for more and on the other hand being like the reality is this is just my budget. But at the time you were doing something really radical. You pushed to set up a division of that newspaper um, and you didn't have any budget and you were basically blagging it to try and make that division successful to ultimately get budget. And I think in that that's different. That is a very different thing. And I think sometimes if there is something that's starting up, there is something that's, you know, for a greater cause, I think there's some leeway there. But if you are a corporation and you are making money out of that, event you should be paying people or you should be very very clear why you're not paying so that they can make a choice whether they speak for you or not Paula, what do you think what were the women in your article telling you um, it was a mixture of things. So uh, they work or had worked across uh, leadership boards um, for women. Um, you know, some of them work across platforms and some of them actually work as uh, freelancers or contractors. And um, a, a sort of recurring theme which came up was, for example, the reaction that you get when you tell someone what your rate is. And, um, and you know, men and women do this for the sake of equality. But um, my kind of view on it was that we as women know that there is a gender pay gap um, and therefore we kind of, it's not that we've got more of a responsibility, it should just be a baseline, you know, um, thing for women that when you are asking a woman the rate that she is going to charge to not kind of, you know, have this intake of breath or make her feel like, make her feel terrible for, for sort of saying that. And one of the people that I spoke to just said, you know what, and I have to agree with this, if you have a rate in your mind, just say what the rate is. But what I feel that a lot of people get away with with women is kind of crossing their fingers that they're going to undercharge and then they don't do the right thing. So they don't do the thing that you do, Emma, and go, actually, you know what, you've undercharged the market rate, I'm going to pay you the market rate. They try and get away with it. I think they do because they've got budgets to hit in. And I think if you if you're, if you ask for your rate and you interpret somebody as doing a big sigh or making you feel bad, I think that's something you have to take ownership of changing. I certainly had to do that and I and when you're really fearless about asking what you want they will come back and go sorry I haven't got that but if you have the attitude of well that's what I'm worth and if you can't pay it I'm not doing the gig that completely change your mindset and how you feel about that reaction and you don't necessarily take it personally or that someone's trying to pull your rate down they're not trying to pull your rate down they're trying to pull the rate down and I think that's a different narrative in your head. They are but what we do know happens from research is that women get more of the oh (sighs) Oh, that's quite heavy. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. 
And also 63% of freelancers are women versus men. So as a gender, we unfortunately get hit more than men. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. We've got Caitlin Davis in the studio, author of Bad Girls, A History of Rebels and Renegades. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I understand that your book started from Holloway Prison, essentially. That was your kind of your interest point to begin with, is that right? Yeah, the whole book is, is set in Holloway Prison. So it's mm-hmm. the women who've been prisoners and the women who've worked as officers at Holloway Prison from 1852, when it was first built as a house of correction, to 2016, when it closed down. So it's a story of some of the very, very first women to be in prison there and the very, very last women to be imprisoned there as well. And how did you come to be interested in it? Well, I grew up um, in in Camden, about half a mile away from the prison. Um, And in the 1960s, it it was still a a sort of mock medieval castle. And you could see it on um, Camden Road, on Pankhurst Road, Parkhurst Road. Um, And you just sort of could see the, the... the, the the sort of the what do you call it, the battlements and the turrets and these sort of windows designed for bows and arrows and you just thought God what an amazing place what is it is it a castle and people would tell you it's a prison and they'd probably also say to you at some point if you're bad then you'll end up in Holloway <laughs> so you know always just sort of loomed loomed large you know as a landmark that you really couldn't miss and then. Uh, when I was training to be a teacher, I did my work placement in Holloway because that was a way to get inside, really, and to see, um, you know, what life was like inside. So I suppose I was being a bit obsessed or fascinated in Holloway for years and years and years and years. But writing about a prison is difficult. You have to get permission, and getting permission is is difficult. It took me about a year and a half to be able to get inside the prison. And- yeah, Caitlin, where did you, um, your uh, history of rebels and renegades, how did you find out about these women and their stories? Like, where did, where do you actually start if you're like, you know, you've obviously had an idea and gone, this prison fascinates me. Mm. Where have you then gone to try and dig out these stories? Well, that's a good them? question because, of course, most women, you know, that came out of Holloway Prison didn't go give an interview and didn't go write a book and didn't necessarily yeah. keep a, light, uh, a diary or whatever. So you've got to start off with the, the people that are well-known and then that will lead you to the people who aren't well-known. And also just simply being able to ask people, you know, because of living locally, I could just put on Facebook to friends, you know, has anyone been in or worked in Holloway Prison? And immediately I had half a dozen, you know, people that I knew that had either been in Holloway or someone in the family had been in Holloway. And then I started realising, you know, that sort of um, an old neighbour of mine, I never knew that her mother was in Holloway in 1940 because she was uh, a Jewish refugee. And once you meet one person like that, then you say, do you know anyone else? And it goes from there and goes from there and goes from there. So your stories are mainly around, you say rebels and renegades. So Mm. you mainly looking at women who kind of probably shouldn't have been in prison. They were kind of more like activism um you know i'm just kind of feel i just kind of feel like there's a multitude of people who end up in prison and mm. some of them are there because they are activists and they're doing stuff but then there's some people there that are there for for lots of unfortunate reasons and- mo- the vast majority of women shouldn't be in prison anyway and actually you could apply that to men as well but particularly women they shouldn't be there anyway so i wanted to look at not the sort of handful of really famous women uh women who were violent and women who who did kill i wanted to look more at uh, just ordinary women women what were they in for what so-called crimes had they committed you know and how can you sort of try and find out about what that says about women and and how we're treated Um, and then also to to look at women because this being the centenary some women getting the votes obviously I was thinking a lot about suffragettes and uh, suffragettes have just linked with Holloway you can't think of one without the other Um, so I wanted to look at other women who were as you said you know jailed basically because of their political beliefs, you know, because they were, they needed to be shut up. They needed to be, you know, if you want to silence somebody uh, or a group of people, send them to prison. And so you've got the suffragettes in the early 1900s and then the 1980s, the women of Greenham Common. Before that, 1920s, uh, Labour councillors in in Poplar and East End, they were jailed there. Wendy Wood, uh, who formed the Scottish Nationalist Party, she was jailed there in the 1950s. So you can trace these political freedom fighters you know from from edwardian times right up to the present 
And, and also I thought it'd be more inspiring, sorry, I thought it'd be more inspiring to have women who have fought the system, you know, uh, rather than... Uh, it's just depressing otherwise when you look at the number of women that, you know, arrested for petty things and, and thrown into Holloway. I've, I'm just really interested in um, you, when you said, you know, there are women who shouldn't be in there anyway. Mm. So beyond um, women who were there to be, quote, shut up or for political reasons, what were some of the other reasons why women were incarcerated but shouldn't have been in there? Well, most of uh, over 164 years of Holloway, most of women... Uh, were being charged with uh, fraud and theft. Those have always been sort of like so-called women's crimes. And that theft, uh, most of the time, is to support their family. So it could have been stealing firewood in Victorian times or coal in World War II or forging clothing coupons or, you know, not being able to afford to pay the TV licence, stealing a milk bottle off a a doorstep. I mean, really, you know, stuff like that. And so if you think that, you know, you've been forced into that position through one way or another, you're stealing to feed, say, your children. Now you've been put in prison, your children have been taken off you. So that's the sort of, um, you know, the, the sort of reasons that women are in there. Also, of course, women are always doubly punished, you know. So women who work as prostitutes, um, you know, millions of women have been in and out of Holloway charged with soliciting uh, prostitution, etc. Women who had or gave other women abortions have always uh, been in Holloway. Women who have tried to kill themselves because suicide was a crime, so they were sent to Holloway. So you can see you know if a prison is full of all people that these things have happened to what what good is that doing how's that going to help anybody amazing Um, Mm. some incredible stories in there and i really want to find out more about actually how we how this is changing and what's going to happen next in the break we were talking about um vicky price's quote that she when she came out of prison she said every woman she met there was basically in prison because of a man what do you think about that yeah, I think that that's pretty accurate, possibly slightly simplified. But, um, you know, women in prison have been victimised in, in one way or another, whether they survived a, a domestic violence or whether they've been a victim of racism at the hands of the justice system or in the way that they've got arrested or, you know, I mean, looking over like 164 years of Holloway, I, I didn't find a single woman who had committed a violent crime independently from a man. Not to say that women uh, don't have independent thought. You know, we can decide what we, what we're going to do. We don't always have to be portrayed as as victims. But you know, women are second class citizens. Women are the you know we're the ones that suffer from most from uh, domestic violence and sexual assault, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you and then you look at the you know the women who are in prison. I mean, why have forty percent um, had experience of, of domestic violence? You know, and and whose hands is that at? And also, you know, it wasn't until something like the 1920s or so that women were even on juries so you've got women being tried by, by men yeah. by the media and um, by the courts by the police by the justice system and then locked up because they're found to have not behaved the way that we, we should have so i think vicky price yeah is right caitlin have you got any uh, stories or any particular like standout women or standout stories that you can share with us um, yeah, to, to be a bit more uh, cheerful <laughs> but, uh, is um, my, my favourite escapee, yeah, Zoe Progel, and she um, she escaped out of Holloway in the summer of 1960. Officially, she's the only woman to have ever escaped from Holloway Prison because the prison because she escaped over the wall. Um, but in the Holloway Prison archives, actually, you asked me earlier, where did I get these stories from? A, a lot from the actual the prison's archives, and um, a lot of women had escaped, but they in prison office uh, service terms it's they absconded because for example they would um, take off their prison outfit and put on the matron's fur coat and walk out the front door <laughs> or when workmen came in to do some work at the prison they would knit their dungarees and overalls and put them on and they would walk out in those and so dozens and dozens of women did that but Zoe was unusual because she actually climbed over um, the both the inner and the outer wall her boyfriend threw a, a rope ladder over the top um, and and she climbed to the top and 
uh, and launched herself off the other side. But what she hadn't realised was that two of her friends had decided to come and watch. This is the summer of 1960 and they're sitting in a, a pink car outside the prison and it's got leopard skin uh, seat covers <laughs> and they're sitting there with their dark glasses on because they've come to watch the action. They know she's going to escape. And so, of course, the police that are standing there are like, what are these, you know, what are these women doing there? So Zoe managed to escape. Um, at the time, she was Britain's top burglar, top female burglar. She escaped and she went on the run for four months, which is uh, a long time. And at one point, her and a boyfriend and daughter did get stopped by the police and pulled over. And she thought, oh, oh, I've had it now. And they said, listen, we don't want to worry you, but there's been an escape from by a nearby prison. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you know, threw her hands up in, in mock alarm and said, oh, no, how awful, how awful, officer. <laughs> and then calmly sort of went. So it's, you know, when you're writing about a prison, uh, particularly, I think, a women's prison, you know, five women were executed there. You need some light relief. You know, you need some women that have really, bucked the system and enjoyed their life of crime and enjoyed even more escaping. I love Britain's Top Burglar it sounds like yeah. a reality show. <laughs> <doesn't Yeah>. it? <laughs> and your next book is about female escapees is that right? Uh, well I'm doing two one is a novel set in Holloway, it's going to be a great escape, so it's a bunch of women that escaped from Holloway in the 1960s because when you think of all the great yeah. escape books and films that you can think of can you think of no, they're all men, any they? women? No I can't. No. Chicken Run great film People, come on. Oh, Harriet, Does you're better than that. Count? <laughs> that doesn't count. Definitely But doesn't. yeah, we definitely need a good, like... Yeah, yeah. a good yeah. escape thing. And yeah. then also I'm doing... Because I discovered a lot of women who... As I say, really enjoyed the criminal life, and they were like the leading jewel thieves of their time: imposters, fraudsters, swindlers, uh, pickpockets, thieves, burglars, whatever, shoplifters. I thought, uh, why is no one ever um, really written about them? Why have we forgotten about them? Well, I guess I know the answer is because it's, you know, male criminals are, are turned into folk heroes. You know, you've got uh, Robin Hood, and you've got. Uh, you know, more recent times, you've got the Cray brothers, you've got, I don't know, Ronnie Big, Big, you've got all of them, and we've got films about them and books and, um, you know, poems and songs. And what about the women? Mm -hmm. Where are the women? And then people will say, well, we don't have women. Women didn't do that. Yeah, they did. Right. They did, and but we've forgotten them. You struggled to get this book published, you were saying in the... Uh, Bad Girls, A History of Holloway. I struggled to get published uh, to begin with, yes, because I was told by my then agent and... Uh, various publishers, um, including, sadly, feminist publishers, that um, it was niche and it wouldn't sell and that people weren't interested. Um, and so, yeah, that was one battle. And the second battle was working with the Ministry of Justice to try and get permission to talk to people and to get access to the archives. Um, and in the end, uh, everything went fantastically and uh, had quite a few publishers bidding for the book and was allowed into the prison. And so it all turned out in the end. But, you know, my God, you've got to be persistent. If you think you've got a good idea for a book, don't give up. <laughs> you know, whatever anyone says to you, don't give up. What's going to happen next with the book? With uh, with um, with bad, bad girls. girls. Well, yeah, I think um, th there are plans afoot for a TV series. Is Exciting. is what I can say at the moment. And uh, you, I don't think any of you can probably remember within these walls. No, you're all mm. a bit young. <laughs> within these walls was a, a prison drama set in Holloway in the seventies. And the governor was played by a, a woman called Googie Withers and she was very sort of uh, dressed up and she always had um, a string of pearls around her neck and she was very sort of BBC. And, <laughs> um, and that was one of the first prison dramas. And then more recently, of course, you had Bad Girls. I um, loved Bad you know, Girls. Which was a very different uh, type of programme. But that too, one of the, the series advisors was an ex-prisoner uh, from Holloway. Uh, who set up the uh, the charity Women in Prison. And so Holloway's been, been the subject of, you know, of prison films, and I think it's time that it we is. need I remember a Prisoner Cell Block H. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was always, it was always on really late at yeah, night. It really put there. me off committing crime. Yeah. I was just like, no, I don't want to end up there. <laughs> but Orange and the New Black, now that's been a really amazing prison yeah, series, actually. Yeah. That's been good. Yeah. Yeah. See, people are fascinated. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. a bit sort of an odd fascination because they're more fascinated with women women in prison and there's that sort of voyeuristic element of uh, you know putting a bunch of women in, in prison and seeing what
what they get up to, you know. But there's a way to to tell those women's stories properly, and also the officers, because you know it's a secret world. We don't know what it's like to work in prison. We really don't. When prison officers, you know, come out of prison, they have to cover their clothes so that nobody knows what they do for a living. You know, whereas the many will tell you in the states that you know people will be proud to call themselves correctional officers, whereas in England. Um, you know, it's it's a job that you don't tell people That's about. So, true. so you're getting all that violence, you know, quite a lot of violence in your day-to-day life, and then you're, you're coming out and having to pretend, you know, you're not doing what you do. Interesting. Have you ever lived a life of crime, Caitlin? Have you? I've been arrested, from... yeah. Have you? And put on trial. So I faced <gasps> prison twice. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's not for? funny. Can yeah, it's ask? horrible. Um, as a journalist... Um, um, in in Botswana, and the first oh. time was, I was editing a newspaper, and there had been an article on a on a street gang. This is in Mount Mon in the um, northern Botswana, on the edge of the Okavango Delta, very pe- then a very peaceful, quiet, traditional um, village. And there was a, a a street gang, and we reported on them. And I'm not sure what happened, but uh, International Human Rights Day, actually, the police walked into the office and just arrested. Most of us, actually. Um, me and the owner and the layout guy, the advertising guy, the journalist. And in the end, it was just me and the journalist who stood trial. And we went, uh, the paper closed down, of course. And uh, I was in and out of court for, I think, about six months. Um, and in Were the you end, in prison in that time? Or? No, I wasn't. I was, I was bailed. So, But, you know, that whole process, if you ever have to stand in court... You know, get up in that little wooden dock and, and answer your name. And what you really want to say is, but what have I done? And I haven't done it. And why am I? But no, you know, your option is yes, no. You know, how old are you? You know, d- d- your name, etc. Is that really dehumanising? Yeah, and that's the point. That's the point of a prison in particular. That's the point of prison. I mean, that's why, you know, um, the suffragettes were made to wear um, clothing with arrows on it and, and given numbers instead of names. You know, all of that, isn't it? is really just dehumanizing. What's your view of prison now? Do you think it well, is do you think it's the right form of correction or should we I, I don't else? think I ever thought it was but until I, until I started writing about Holloway I don't think I realized for just how long so many people have been saying very very loudly yeah. prison does not work. You know, it maybe it started off as punishment did that work? I don't know. The thing about prison, it's looking at the person who's committed the crime and not the person who's had the crime committed against them. So the whole system is about, you know, coming up with more and more laws, more and more crimes, more and more people in prison. And then then it switched to, okay, reformation, uh, rehabilitation, that hasn't worked either. And in terms of women, because women do not pose a threat, like I say, vast, I don't know, 99% of women in prison don't pose a threat. So if you were to lock up women who did pose a threat to other people in the whole of the um, UK, you'd have maybe 12 women. Now, look at Holloway wow. when it closed. Holloway had, what, 500 women? And that's why you've got um, Women in Prison and Reclaim Holloway, a group that are now looking at the empty 10-acre site where the prison once stood. They've got a campaign 2020 to try and reduce the number of women in prison in half by 2020 and these campaigners and other similar groups have been working on this since Victorian times you know the arguments have have barely changed why are so many people being sent to prison and the impact on families and communities when women are sent to prison when they have not committed violent crimes what a waste what a waste. And then the, the government talks about a prison building revolution. No, that's what happened in Victorian times. Let's build more prisons. Well, that hasn't worked, has it? Mm. Fascinating. What do you think will happen to the Holloway site now? Well, there's going to be a continuing uh, battle over it because, as I say, it's a 10-acre it's a site. It's now prime real estate. I yeah. mean, when Holloway was built in the 1850s, uh, neighbours were uh, alarmed, you know, because they didn't, they thought house prices would go down. And now, you know, the opposite's happened. Uh, house prices have very gone up. Very, yeah. And other people are going to be, you know, there's a certain amount of social cleansing going. You know, other people will be forced yeah. out there as well. So Islington Council has demanded 50% affordable um, homes on the site. Okay, that's that's good. Obviously, you've got to define affordable. Um, but the government is is bent on selling it to investors who will build luxury flats. Mm-hmm. 
So I think this is a battle that's going to go on for a while. Reclaim Holloway, which is a network of various organisations, have been working on this for two years since the prison closed. Um, and they've got loads of suggestions for what should be there. And one is a permanent women's building. And that would have a women's centre that offers the services that would prevent women ending up in prison in the first place. So whether it's domestic violence uh, services, sexual assault services, drug and alcohol, um, uh, health care, mental health care, uh, employment, you know, all the things that would really... This is what women's centres... Really There's help. only two in London. Um, and that's what, you know, helps women not end up in prison. And then also they want that... Uh, women's building as a permanent legacy to the suffragettes so that we recognise the suffragettes were in there, several yeah. hundred of them. They were tortured over an eight-year period. Um, and um, here's this empty site. Let's have something, you know, reminding us uh, of the links between um, suffrage and Holloway. And, of course, the first woman ever to be elected um, MP, Constance Markovich, was locked up in Holloway prison while she was elected MP for um, uh, Dublin St Patrick's. So, yeah, we need some memorial there. It's an incredible mm -hmm. history. I absolutely agree with you. It needs to be memorialised. We need to recognise it and remember it. And, God, would I love to see a women's centre in London rather than another mm -hmm. block of luxury flats. Mm -hmm. Caitlin Davis, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Caitlin, author of Bad Girls, A History of Rebels and Renegades, which is out now. So do go buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Vampire Strikes Back. Badass Women's Hour Excel on Talk Radio. So earlier on in the show, we were talking about Jada Pinkett Smith and her red table conversation that she had with Will Smith's ex-wife, all about being a stepmom. In the studio now with us, we are lucky enough to have Priscilla Apening, founder of the Step Mums Club. Priscilla, welcome. Thank Hello. you for joining us. Hi. No, lovely to have you. Um, did you see that conversation and what did you think of it? Yes, I saw it. Um, a lot of people brought my attention to it and I found it really really moving i mean in the end i've decided to name the red table the healing table because it was just such a beautiful opportunity for women to just be real um and to to heal and just to love and show respect to one one another and i feel like it's just an example that all women should take try and take on board just just be honest and see what comes of it so you founded the Stepmoms Club. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Okay, so basically it's a platform um, trying to bridge the gap between stepmom and birth mom. So what I do is I just post anything that is promoting peace and love and honesty. And I run a social every month for birth mums and stepmoms where we talk about only blended family issues so that stepmoms can think, oh, I never knew. And then um, step and then birth mums can think, this is why 
I never knew either. And then hopefully that there's some kind of understanding or some thoughtfulness between the two kinds of mother mothering situations. And now I'm going to launch um, an interactive website and workshops that will help women that are struggling paying for fees for family law and for any women that are struggling with, you know, navigating their role as a stepmom. Amazing. Yeah, it's such an important um, topic because I think more and more, you know, we don't, well, we haven't done for a long time, had that kind of nuclear family. I yeah. personally was once in a relationship where there were where there were two children and I always thought it was such a, it must be such a big thing as a mother, your mother yourself, yeah. to let another woman be in the care of your children to, to play quite a significant caring role in your, yeah. in your child's life. Uh, and equally, it's a challenge for, for stepmoms to also do that role. Yeah. What are you, what are you, how do you navigate that as a birth mum mm-hmm. and being okay and comfortable with a, um, another woman having a kind of a motherly relationship with your children? Well, I say fortunately and unfortunately for me that when I had my first daughter, she was from she's she's not my husband's um birth child. Um her father didn't want anything to do with her, so I don't have to co-parent in that sense, but looking at the kind of man that he is now and thinking about the kind of women that he dates, I understand why a birth mum would be pent up. Um for me, I I know I would find it hard. I would find it hard, but I know in my character, I have to do anything I can do to make sure that wherever my daughter is, she's in a place where she's happy and comfortable. So if that means I have to meet another woman who I may not approve of, um, at least I know what my daughter is around and I will know what to do going forward to make it comfortable for her. So I think it just comes down to, as a birth mum, making sure that you know where your kids are and what surroundings that they're they're being exposed to. I think it's also, I mean, I've just been listening to you and it sounds amazing because it also sounds like there's a place if you're a stepmom to be able to ask the questions that might be difficult questions. And actually, my sister is a stepmother, so mm. she's um, she's on her second marriage and she doesn't really talk to us that much about yeah. being a stepmom, but it's obviously a huge part of her um, existence. And yeah. she has her own kid now um, with my brother-in-law. But I just, I was just thinking this must just be such a fantastic thing for her to be able to go and visit and, you know, just um, get involved and find out how other stepmoms, are, what yeah. their mothering techniques are like. And I just think it sounds brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. What do you think are some of the key issues that stepmoms face? Do you know what? It really just comes down to mental health. I mean, everyone has mental health issues from time to time. But I mean, specifically for stepmoms, we're talking about blowing up their whole world, Um, obviously by choice, but not really knowing where you're how your life is going to look because there's no social norms to kind of track where or what you're going to expect except for Disney who's really (laughs) just killed the game for all of us (laughs) everyone automatically thinks that it's you know a dread place but actually you've fallen in love with a man and he happens to have children and it now comes down to a point of are you going to fall in love with his kids or are you just going to do what you have to do for the sake of the man and that really flags up so many mental health issues within you because um you know you you're not going to really want to speak to your friends because they're not in the same position as you you're not going to want to speak to your parents or family members because do they really want you to be in that position do they really want you to be with a man that already has kids probably not you know um and then you're you're suffering alone really like you're you're trying to work things out day by day by yourself you know you can fall into feelings of isolation and that would lead to some type of anxiety myself I suffered with anxiety as well and then there's women that I speak to all across the world that tell me that you know I've just been declared clinically depressed and you know I'm on tablets now and this is not what I expected my life to be because I fell in love so all in all I think that the the biggest thing is mental health and how you can make sure that your life is happy for yourself before you can share yourself with your stepkids or your kids and your partner. Something that I always struggled with in uh, in that relationship was whether I do play the role of 
not necessarily mum because mm-hmm. I felt those children had a mother mm-hmm. and I always took the stance of I'm not going to reprimand them or um, tell them off or anything like that. I, I always came from a place where I was going to be like a friend, yeah. almost like an auntie figure. But I always kind of wondered if that was the best thing to do. I mean, these children were like, they were under eight right. years old. Right. So, you know, under eight year olds, you know, so can be tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's always really difficult to navigate those moments when when they were tricky. Like, is there a protocol or is it just, is it choice about that? Um, It's absolutely choice because we, Every family dynamic is different, right? For me in particular, I mean, when I met my stepsons, they were um, five and six. I, I don't know how anyone else feels, but for me, in my house, I am God, literally. <laughs> if I am telling, I don't know, like one of my daughter to clean up, I mean, your brothers will clean up too. Like everyone has to get involved. And I feel like we all mother all women mother whether you you know actually have children or not we all mother you mother your friends you mother your friends children you may even mother your mother it's just in our nature and so um I I do feel like you should have that kind of mindset of I am gonna mother you I am gonna take care of you am I gonna call myself your mother no of course not but you know you are my responsibility when you are with me and I'm I'm gonna take that seriously Priscilla, thank you so much. If people want to find out more about the Stepmoms Club, where should they have a look? For now, I am on Instagram and it's literally the Stepmoms Club, but M-U-M-S Mums Club. That's it. Brilliant. Thank you so much. One, two, three, four. This has been Badass Women's Hour's Best Bits. Uh, if you liked it, please do rate, review and subscribe us. We love that. Five stars. Um, or come chat to us on social media. You can find us at Badass Women's Hour HR, at Badass Women's Hour, or come talk to us individually. I'm at Harriet Minter. At Emma Sexton. And at Nat D. Campbell. And we'll be here again next week, same time, same place. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.